What's going on with Cleveland suburbs? We have Beachwood police trying to unveil an anonymous critic. We have Cleveland Heights police really hassling a guy who captured it all on video in a way that's ugly. What's going on with our suburban police departments? They're out of control. It's today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and a somewhat ailing Courtney Astolfi. So we're going to be nice to her today and not have her talk too much. Let's begin. Derek Marin keeps trying to assert authority over the Ohio House, even though he was outmaneuvered in his bid to be House Speaker. What's his latest gambit, Lisa? And how did that work out for him? Yeah, it didn't work out too well. Uh, yesterday, the House voted on, uh, you know, House rules and caucus leadership positions. And the 40-plus the Marin backers failed to stop uh, Jason Stevens' leadership team being nominated. They didn't get the uh, bills that they wanted. And uh, Stevens didn't call. Some of the Marin GOP people were shouting as these, you know, new rules were being introduced and voted on. Stevens did not call on them. Uh, He didn't want any of them to propose any amendments. And the Marin group was demanding 70% of the committee assignments. They wanted to hire at least half of the House GOP staffers. And they wanted to, you know, strip the power of the speaker and give that power to the GOP caucus. Well, none of that happened. So some of the rules that they did pass yesterday, they uh, gave the speaker the continue to control what bills the House votes on in the legislative calendar that was preserved. Democrats have a little bit more representation on committees. It also allows Democratic Minority Leader Allison Russo to choose special subcommittee members. Uh, no members will be forced to vote on amendments or substitute bills that they have not previously seen. The Speaker and the Minority Leader can fill vacated House seats from their respective parties that was previously up to the party caucuses. So yeah, uh, it looks like Marin got nothing of his wish list done. But he never was going to. I mean, th- what's bizarre about this, he's acting like Donald Trump, like he won. But mm-hmm. th- this isn't one where you can claim voter fraud. So so he's just proceeding like he's got power and authority when he has none. So he looks ridiculous. And I I just keep wondering about the people that support him Are they eventually going to look at themselves and say, we look really dopey here. We need to go work with our Republican leader, Stevens. He won. So let's put our support behind him. This is one of the strangest things I've seen. Nobody did this when Larry Householder pulled the same gambit. What is this guy thinking? He has no power, no authority, and he's just annoying the guy who does. Well, I think, you know, and as we discussed, you know, before we knew he was not going to be speaker, he was setting a very aggressive legislative agenda. So I at, at the top of the list was that 60% voter majority for constitutional amendments to pass. So his whole thing's been derailed. But yeah, he's like a pit bull. He's not letting go. But he's like a delusional pit bull. I mean, he doesn't have any touch with reality. I mean, it's good for Ohio, I guess, that he did not win that vote because do you really want somebody so power hungry and delusional at the at the controls? Interesting story. I, I'm sure we'll keep hearing from him, even though it's all kind of meaningless. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Some years, the Cleveland Clinic is Ohio's biggest employer. Some years, it's Walmart. Laura, who sits atop the latest ranking of the 100 biggest employers in the state, who fills out the top 10? 
Well, funny, it's never Target. <laughs> uh, Target's 23, but it is the clinic this year. The clinic beat out Walmart to regain the top spot. It has 56,986 Ohioans employed. That's about 4,300 more than in 2021. All of these numbers come from the Ohio Department of Development. Most of them come from official reports, but they are estimating some of them. Walmart's got the second position, 55,262 Ohio jobs. That's 166 retail stores. So not all of these are high paying jobs, but also seven distribution and fulfillment centers. This is up about 2000 jobs from 2021, even though 10 of their stores closed during the year. So you have to think those fulfillment and distribution centers are doing a lot more business. There's uh, the top three industries in this whole list of 100 is retail, 28 companies, health, 19, and that's the big part of the biggest ones, and manufacturing. So five hospital systems were in the top 10. That includes University Hospitals, Mercy Health, and Ohio Health. But I was actually going through this list last night with my family, asking them to guess what was bigger, like Key Bank or Chase or Fifth Third. And they're not what you would think. All of the public universities in Ohio are on this list. Um, all of the big banks, all of the healthcare centers. It's it's pretty interesting. And Zachary Smith put it together. So I would highly recommend people go check it out on cleveland.com. It is hard to fathom how Walmart and Amazon and retailers have that many employees. A UPS and FedEx are way, way up there. With, yeah, FedEx with, jumped like ten or 15,000 employees in one year. So you think about all of that mail order. Well, it's not mail, but, you know, online shopping. Yeah, it's just it takes a gigantic staff then to get things done. And with UPS threatening a pretty serious strike, you could have a downturn in the Ohio economy just from those folks being out of work. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it is eye-opening to see that because of the big companies we think of, like Progressive or Sherwin-Williams, they're on this list, but they are not as high as Kroger or Giant Eagle, right? Number five is Ohio State University and their medical center, which makes a lot of sense. Obviously, huge school and a big medical center. Three is Amazon, two Walmart. We went over those. So it, it is... Um, it's worth looking at. Right, Pat, Air Force Base is on this list. That's number six. So think about how many people are employed there in Dayton. And uh, yeah, a lot of surprises. Yeah, yeah, it's worth perusing. It's on cleveland.com. Check it out. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland City Council is considering another odd use of tax money not long after the city talked of using tax dollars to pay for women's travel for out-of-state abortions. Courtney, what's on the agenda this time around? Yeah, for introduction this week before City Council, we saw a proposal come from seven of Council's 17 members. That's a, that's a high share of, of folks back in this. A proposal that would use $1.9 million in federal stimulus aid from, you know, ARPA money to wipe out medical debt for a bunch of Clevelanders. And I was not expecting this. It It, it, it is an interesting proposal. It's pretty different than the other ARPA proposals we've seen come forth. And like I said, it's all it's all council's idea. This is not a mayor idea. You know, council president Blaine Griffin's backing it. And and basically what this proposal would look like is it, it would work with this nonprofit in New York called RIP Medical Debt. You may have heard of it. I've kind of seen it out in the world increasingly in, in recent years. But what this com or what this nonprofit does is it buys debt at, at really discounted rates and and uses donations and other revenue 
to pay off debt for folks. Yeah, I again, this feels like social engineering, the redistribution of wealth, which is an odd use of tax dollars. And when you think of what taxes pay for, it's services. We had the same discussion back when we were talking about the abortion issue, which hasn't really come up because the heartbeat bill is on hold. Uh, It just seems like for for people who are conservative, they're going to raise hell. You know, that, that, that why should my taxes be paid to take care of somebody else's debt? Laura mentioned yesterday, it's like the college loan controversy. And I, I would expect there'd be some controversy about this, no? Well, we'll have to see. We really haven't seen any conversations get off the ground. This has just been introduced. But like I said, seven of 17 members back this and Cleveland's not a conservative city. So maybe what wouldn't fly elsewhere is is there aren't issues here. We'll have to see more particulars, though, about how this would play out. That's what I'm particularly interested in. So the legislation indicated that about 49,000 residents could, could get help wiping out debt through this allocation, but we don't really know how the city would choose which folks to help. Mm. RIP Medical Debt says, you know, most of its money goes towards paying off debt for people making less than four times the, the federal poverty level and and folks whose debt makes up 5% or more of annual income. But I think there's an argument here, Chris, you know, we talk about economic development and we talk about investing in development and buildings. I mean, there, there seems to be a drive to invest in Clevelanders instead of, you know, static objects like that. I, I don't know. I think this is an interesting, unique proposal. It's ARPA dollars, so it's not the income taxes that people who live in the suburbs pay to Cleveland. But I do wonder whether this causes people to bristle that that public money is being used for it. It's a great discussion uh, that we'll have to mine further in the, as, as this moves along as to the appropriateness of it and what the significance can be. Part of my understanding is these are these are debts that aren't getting paid. And so this, this New York agency pays these debts off for pennies on the dollar, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, this concept's kind of been out there. I think I saw a John Oliver, you know, show a few years ago where he spent a money, a lot of money doing this. One of our columnists at Christmas encouraged residents to donate to this RAP medical debt group. So we, we know the cost of healthcare is outrageous in this country and this seems to be a, a, a growing kind of idea. It's an innovative thought. Uh, you got to credit the council for being creative in the way they're approaching the ARPA money, even if, as we discussed yesterday, they're still trying to create slush funds. Moving on, you're listening to Today in Ohio. How can anyone enforce a proposed Ohio law that would stop public pension funds from making investments based on philosophy? Lisa, I don't know how you get into a fund manager's head, but that's what lawmakers appear to be trying to do. Yeah, this is pretty ridiculous. Um, Senate Bill 6, which is sponsored by Ken Shearing, the Republican senator from Canton, would ban state pension funds from choosing what is known as ESG investments, standing for environmental, social, and governance. Now, the goal of these investments is to minimize societal harms from climate, executive pay issues, shareholder rights, 
rights, customer and employee rights, and so on and so forth. So Senate Bill 6, if passed, would affect several major pension funds in Ohio, including the Ohio Public Employees, State Teachers, uh, Ohio Police and Fire Pension Fund, the Highway Patrol Retirement System, School Employees Retirement, the Bureau of Workers' Comp, and all public college and university funds. None of them currently have ESG goals. Shuring says the purpose of public investments is to maximize return on investment, not for influencing social and environmental policy. The bill would prohibit what's called influence of corporate governance, which is different from other ESG bills that are in other states like Texas, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and South Carolina. Now, the GOP came out swinging on this. Senate President Matt Huffman, spokesman John Fortney, says, quote, this is an effort by foreign extremists to force dangerous globalist platforms into corporate boardrooms with the goal of undermining sound fiscal policies and the American economy. Now, that's a mouthful. Yeah, except... All the fund manager has to do is say, we're investing in it because it's a good and safe investment. And how do you prove that the reason they decided to invest the money was for the philosophical reasons that they're trying to prohibit? I, I just, it seems like an unenforceable law that, that they want to be able to say, look what we did. Right. Feel good about right. it. Right. And Case Western Reserve University uh, environmental law professor Victor Flatt, who we talked to, says federal law requires state pension funds to focus on the rate of return of their investments in making their clients money. If a fund manager sees an opportunity for colleges, retirees, and others, they will be allowed to choose investments with ESG goals. So, <laughs> hello. Yeah, this is this is stupid. I mean, this is just more of the Ohio shenanigans that happen at the state house. This is it's unenforceable. It's pointless, and I guess they just get to pound their chests. It's today in Ohio. All right, Laura, let's consider these ingredients. An Ohio congressman, a controversial committee likely designed to create Fox News headlines. <laughs> investigating the coronavirus in the United States. But it's not Jim Jordan. Who is it? It is not Jim Jordan. Uh, it's Brad Wenstrup. Same party as Jordan, though. He's a Republican. He's a doctor who's represented the Cincinnati area for the last 10 years in Congress. And he expects to become the chair of the Select House of Representatives subcommittee that will look into politically charged coronavirus-related questions. They want to know the origins of the disease, the development of vaccines, how roughly $5 trillion in federal aid was used, and the societal impact of co coronavirus-related school closures. So he expects a formal announcement in a couple of days from House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. I, I have to hope, and I don't know a lot about Brad Wenstrup, but that because he's a doctor, and these are real questions that the American population deserves to know that this is not just a wild fishing expedition, that there will be some modicum of moderation and actual <laughs> academic research. I, okay. <laughs> laugh at me. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Right. There's, there's every possibility of that. Man, did you wake up the optimist today? <laughs> and this is, this is made to give Tucker Carlson something to complain about this. I I'll I'm we'll see. I, maybe you'll be right. Maybe we'll be talking about this. I mean, there are legitimate questions to answer here, right? This is not just like, let's look at Hunter Biden's laptop. 
No, it what this is is let's pillory Anthony Fauci. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is all going to well, be anti-Fauci. Or let's blame anti- the Chinese, right? right. I, I that that scares right. me. It's the Chinese. They did it on purpose, and the vaccines were were bad, and you know, right? Make and that this was purposely created as a terrorist, whatever. Yeah, you know, there's going to be twelve members appointed to this committee. Um, so he's not the only one doing this. They've got a final report issued to the House no later than January of 2024. They can provide interim reports if they want. There already has been a COVID committee, but that was when Democrats controlled the U.S. House, and they issued a report that blamed Trump for poor management of relief programs that left them vulnerable to waste and fraud and abuse. Wenstrup was not on the committee at that point. Well, and look, the, Trump fumbled the coronavirus terribly. It's one of the reasons he lost. The one thing he did do was invest in the vaccines, which did make a big difference. So I, I I have zero expectations. This is going to be a legitimate committee. I hope Brad Winstrup proves me wrong. It's today in Ohio. Did homicides go up, drop, or stay about the same in 2022 in Cleveland compared to the previous year? And Courtney, what about other violent crimes? Yeah, so we have a a look here from reporter Olivia Mitchell about where crime stands in Cleveland now that we've closed out 2022, looking back at that year. And I think it's fair to say that homicide stayed about the same. Sure, I guess you can argue there's a slight decrease, but you know, the city recorded 168 homicides last year. Compare that to 2021 when there are 171 homicides, excuse me. And we always know those numbers are off by a handful every year. So it looks pretty similar. But the great news here is that we are continuing this lower level trend from the 2020 high of 192 homicides. So between last year and this year, we're down about 20 from that high in in 2020. But I do want to point out, you know, when I was covering Cleveland police five-ish years ago, our numbers were hovering around 130. So we're still at elevated levels compared to the recent past, but at least not at that high. And, um, you know, we got some context here, you know, reporter Olivia Mitchell talked to folks who are involved in trying to ward off crime in Cleveland, work with the community, work with police. And one of them, Maisha Watkins of the Peacemakers Alliance, said there's really no safe place for our young people in the city right now. She's deeply concerned. We've seen some very concerning cases recently, like like that 18-year-old young man who was shot outside his high school earlier this month, Pierre McCoy. And, and But like you said, we're not just talking about homicides here. We did get some year-end stats on other crimes. You know, in, in, in 2022, Cleveland saw a decrease of felonious assaults. So that's an important one to note. 13% down from the previous year in 2021. But in 2022, there was an uptick in robberies. So that was nearly a 5% increase over the previous year. And I think carjackings count as robberies, and we had a rash of those. I, it, it's sad that it's so high. I remember, this is going to date me again, but I remember after the crack years when homicides had soared because all the battles, the, the homicide rate started to really plunge. And I think we got as low as about 69 in a year, way back about 20 years ago, 20, 23 years ago. But we started rising again, what, about a decade ago, and we, we really are at some, some very high numbers and no sign of it abating. I mean, to say we stayed about the same 
is bad, as you say, because just a few years back, we were much, much lower. Yeah. And, and, you know, the folks that Olivia spoke with pointed to different problems in our community that, that are obvious and we know they're out there. People don't trust police. We've got this proliferation of guns on the street. You know, we can point to all this stuff, but where's the change going to come into play? You talked about robbery of cars. One more interesting stat I wanted to throw out there, um, you know, involving stolen vehicles last year. There was a jump of nearly 33% uh, from 2021 of vehicle thefts. And there were about 4,700 last year. And part of that's part of that national uptick in Kias and Hyundais getting stolen yeah, because of manufacturer right. problems. Yeah. It's, uh, what did what this, this, that we heard? There's 24 Kias or Hyundais being taken to the impound lot every day in Cleveland because they've been stolen and being joy ridden. It's amazing how many of those, but you know, it's reduced carjackings because anybody who wants can get the car. They don't need to pull a gun to get it now. So there's an upside to even that trend. It's today in Ohio. Who doesn't love Tom Hanks, who may as well be a native Clevelander for all of his ties here. His latest movie, A Man Called Otto, has a couple. Lisa, what are they? Yeah, they did some filming right here in Ohio. And apparently they could have done the whole film here, but we'll talk to about that later. So this is Tom Hanks plays a man called Otto, who's a boomer who's lost his purpose in life after his wife's death. It was mostly shot in Pittsburgh, but there was a scene in Northeast Ohio, the Cuyahoga Valley Scenic Railroad Brexville Station on Riverview Road was part of a scene where uh, Tom Hanks' son, Truman Hanks, is playing a younger version of his father's character. Uh, the CEO of the railroad, Joe Mazur, says that they did a post on this that they were filming there, and he, it went viral. And he said, seriously, it's a Tom Hanks movie. Of course it went viral. Uh, they used five cars, uh, you know, passenger cars, and they were filmed leaving the station on their way to Akron. Uh, another... Northeast Ohio Connection, an actor, Peter Lawson Jones, who is a former Cuyahoga County Commissioner and a, a Shaker lawmaker, he plays a stroke victim named Reuben, who is Otto's uh, neighbor and estranged friend. It's a major role in the movie. He's a 70-year-old attorney and business consultant. He's had roles in television and movies, and he said that he channeled his own father for this role in this movie. And uh, Greater Cleveland Film Commissioner Bill Garvey said, you know, it, there was a lost chance to film locally here because they were scouting locations back in 2020 for this film in Cleveland and Northeast Ohio. But since the commission had already reached its $40 million cap on tax credits, they ended up pivoting to Pittsburgh. Yeah, I don't know why we don't raise that that cap. We're losing lots of business now. I, I was talking to the film commission a while back, and it it's crippling. I mean, there there are movies that desperately want... Ohio. We have some things in Cleveland nobody else has. We have a vacant air, airport terminal. Who else has that? That's great for any any movie that wants to have an airport setting. And yet the, the credits are all gone every year. They're, they're taken up and we're competing with states that have triple and quadruple the limit. So we're losing as we're trying to build that industry. I do. I am surprised it took so long 
to learn of the railroad story because this movie's been out for a little while and we just learned of this this in the past week. And I'm surprised that there was no, there were no social media posts just by regular people who happened to stumble upon it. So yeah, I mean, I didn't even know about it until the story was filmed. Whereas that Adam Driver film, we knew they were coming before they came. We knew that where they were going to be and when they were going to be filming. So yeah, interesting. Yeah, it was. It's very yeah. odd. I'm really surprised my parents didn't like text me from the theater, like, "Oh my gosh, our railroad <laughs> is in this movie!" Because they loved it. And my mom loves the Cuyahoga Valley National Railroad. So, I mean, who does it? It's beautiful. It's through the national park. And and you would have thought the parks would have said it anyway. It's a good story. It, we got it finally, and uh, it's on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is staging a big concert in Nashville the country music center of the country. Laura, what's that about? Well, this is the mother church of country music, the Ryman Auditorium, the original home of the Grand Ole Opry. And what they're going to do is celebrate the intersection of rock and country music with a special concert on March 1st. We all know that Dolly Parton is now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But Johnny Cash is there. There is obviously an intersection between the two types of music. So Rock the Ryman lineup is going to feature the war and treaty gavin DeGraw, and maddie and tay more announcements are coming and each artist will perform two or three songs by rock hall inductees who served as influences and had an impact on their careers so the ryman is a beautiful old building in the middle of downtown nashville's um, 1892 built and it's a hall of it's actually a rock and roll hall of fame landmark so they're trying to do more with each other to promote the music I, I just wonder if we'll see some version of this in Cleveland or if it's just going to be in Nashville. Country stars at the Rock Hall? I, well, they, like you said, Dolly Parton's in, so I think anything goes at this point. It, I mean, just walk over to Brown Stadium. We can use that <laughs> as a concert <laughs> But then venue. the Country Music Hall of Fame, which there is one, maybe they should accept people from other genres. Just saying. <laughs> I got to say, I've been to the Country Music Hall of Fame. I was really excited to go a couple of years ago on spring break, took my kids, and I was disappointed compared to how much we have at the Rock Hall. I just, it was smaller than I expected. It didn't have the same kind of, I don't know, the same kind of collection that I had been used to here. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How much will Ohioans save now that Joe Biden's administration has capped the price of insulin for diabetics? Courtney, this has ramifications for a huge swath of people in Northeast Ohio, and the cost of insulin had been crippling for some years now. Yeah, this is a, an interesting number. The The Department of Health and Human Services came out with a study that gave us an understanding of how this rule change on the insulin cap is going to affect Ohioans. And what the study found was that more than $36 million in annual costs for Medicare, Medicare beneficiaries in Ohio, that's how much they're going to save. So that's that's a wild number that includes some 72,000 people. And, you know, it's worth noting here that Medicare recipients generally have higher rates of diabetes that would then require the insulin than, than other insurers. So this is kind of attacking a big part of the problem. And and basically using statistics from 2020, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services worked on the math to see how this would shake out. And it found that as applied to the spending in 2020, this capping of insulin would have saved 
1.5 million Americans an average of 500 bucks a year that they're spending on insulin. And like you said, this this is really important right now. The listing prices for, for insulin doubled between 2012 and 2016. And that's called as huge pinches for, for the folks who rely on incident on insulin. And Sabrina Eaton, our, our DC reporter, quoted HHS Secretary Javier Becerra and, and he said kind of the aim of this cap, which would which would limit it, I think. I lost the number, but Javier Becerra said, you know, this would allow people to get a little bit more breathing room to cover household costs. So you don't have to pick between your insulin and, and putting food on the table. Well, the frightening thing about something like insulin or other uh, prescriptions people must get every day is you don't really have a choice. You know, I have to take a, a thyroid medicine every day or my heart goes kablooey. There's no choice. I mean, I have to take it. So if the price of that started to to shoot up, you have to pay it. And you would think that as a country, we would acknowledge the importance of that and make sure that people can get access to the basic medicines they need to be healthy, the statins and, and other things. You don't have a choice. If you don't take them, you, you, you can you know, get very sick and die. So it, this is, it's good to see this happening. It's just odd that it took this long to correct it. Yeah. So, so I do want to note here, I did find the caps $35 a month for out of pocket expenses here. And, and this cap started January 1st for people who use Medicare, Medicare part D and on July 1st for those who use Medicare part B. But to your point, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about the city looking to wipe out medical debt. Yeah, this stuff is necessary and people are are backed into a corner and forced to pay out for for life-saving things. I'm I'm in agreement with you there, Chris. Yeah, it's a good development. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That closes out the Wednesday episode. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, everybody who listens.